What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. It's your host, Chris, and today I had the pleasure of sitting down and chatting with Dr. Tracy Baxley. All right. So I was unfamiliar with Tracy's work, but uh, yeah. Her, her publisher reached out, told me about her brand new book that actually just released this week called Social Justice Parenting. I'm like, hey, you want to check it out and maybe do an interview? I'm like, eh, maybe. We'll see. I enjoy books on parenting, but sometimes if you hear the word social justice, it's like, ah, is this going to be like really preachy? So I checked it out. And let me tell you, I binged this book. This is just one of the better books on parenting that I've read alongside, you know, some of the other guests I've had on here, like Melinda Wenamoya and uh, Julie Vick and everything like that. Um, this, this book is phenomenal. Uh, Tracy did an amazing job with this book. Uh, and we talk a lot about some different topics in this book. One of my favorite things about this book is like I said, like some of the books that say like social justice, they can come off very preachy. This book did not do that in any way, shape or form. It talks about, you know, a lot of subjects, like how do we talk to our kids about racism, sexism, but you know, one of the, you know, one of the favorite parts of the book that I had was there's a lot of talk about mental health and Tracy and I are able to dive into some of those topics. We talk about the importance of teaching your kids to advocate for themselves. Right. And, you know, with all the different interviews that we do on here and everything about, you know, some of the, you know, culture war topics and things like that, you know, Tracy is a huge advocate for teaching our kids to be resilient, but also to stand up for themselves, to stand up for what they believe in and to defend other people. This book is, it's phenomenal because it comes from a very compassionate place and, I had an absolute blast talking with Tracy because we're we're on the same page uh, with a lot of the the stuff about parenting, and there's a lot of introspection that Tracy talks about in this book. Like we have to look at ourselves and how we're parenting, why we're parenting like that, what comes from our own past, and we're able to chat about that a little bit in this. And you know, we also talk about how one of the biggest issues that there is when it comes to parenting and educating our kids is that we're often coming from this place of fear. We don't want to expose them to things like critical race theory because we're worried that they're going to think they're terrible kids or the world is a scary place. We don't want to talk to them about mental health because we think, you know, it'll be awful, but it's part of our responsibility as parents. So I absolutely loved talking with Tracy. This is such an important book. And yeah, she comes from a place when talking about social justice where it's just, being compassionate and kind to one another, recognizing injustices, recognizing suffering and teaching our kids to do better when talking with other people and helping others. So they grow up into good young adults and adults. So this is one of my favorite parenting books that I've come across. And I'm so glad I had the pleasure of speaking with Tracy about it. So make sure you head down to the description, make sure you're following Tracy over on Instagram. And make sure that you grab a copy of her book, Social Justice Parenting. It just released this week. All right. So it is out now. So make sure that you check it out. All right. But before we jump into the conversation, speaking of mental health and the importance of mental health for kids and everything, in case you missed it, check down in the description below. There is a link. I have released not one, but two brand new books all about mental health. It covers some of my personal stories from, you know, getting sober, working on my depression, my anxiety, traumatic childhood, and just, you know, dealing with all these things. But aside from personal stories, I also intertwine, you know, evidence-based research from all the books that I read and everything. The books are absolutely free. And yeah, if, if you think that someone you know might benefit from it, you know, a lot of people struggle in silence. So make sure that you share it. It's 100% free, both of the books. It's uh, two volumes. It's a collection of writings. So check it out. Make sure that you share it. All right. But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Tracy Baxley about her amazing new book, Social Justice Parenting.
right? Hello, Tracy. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm great, Chris. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It is an honor because I just finished your book, as I was telling you this morning. Your brand new book coming out is called Social Justice Parenting. So before we dive into the book, for those who have yet to meet you, can you give us a little bit of who you are, your background, and all that good stuff? Yeah, my name is Teresa Baxley, and I am my first role is a mother of five. <laughs> I'm also a professor, and I am a consultant and coach, all things belonging, DEI related. I um, have a consulting company where I work with um, corporations and organizations on working, you know, to improve their inclusion inclusion policies and practices and um i'm really big on creating environments where people feel like they belong mm. um, and i do the same with families right working with anti-racist issues parents that want to do better with raising their ch- children to me c- be more compassionate and kind and um you know being the kids that stand up for others really yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the reasons I love the book for so like so much. I was like, yes, like these are the, the type of values I'm trying to instill in my kid, and you know, hopefully more parents like you know pick up this book and you know s- you know learn from it and all that. But you know, with with the work that you're doing and being a mother, what kind of inspired this book? Because you're doing quite a few things. Like, what happened where you were sitting back and you're like, I I need to talk about social justice parenting. Was there like an aha moment, or what happened? You know, it's it's been something, obviously, as a mom, just as, as a Black woman, right? I've always grown up thinking about the world mm. and my place in the world and when I started having children, how they fit into the world. So it's been something ongoing, but I think the defining moment for me to say, this is more than just what I'm teaching my kids, but what is my role um, as an educator, right, mm. as, as a mother to help other mothers see the importance of them like mothering my mothering my child or parenting my child Mm -hmm. and so it was the moment where i had my oldest son who was struggling with some ocd issues had a moment where i couldn't find him Mm. and my neighborhood as a predominantly white neighborhood my family's the only black family in the neighborhood and it was after like the Trayvon Martin thing. Um, mm-hmm. And I just went into this panic, like, what if my neighbors don't know who my kid is? Mm-hmm. What does that look for? What would that, what does that look like in their panic? As they're seeing my six, one black son running in my neighborhood or whatever mm-hmm. the case was. And so that was kind of the moment that I, that the whole idea of social justice parenting even though it didn't have a name at that moment, right? That idea of we are one big village mm-hmm. and we have to learn how to help each other um, with raising good, good people who are active and making changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I remember you writing about that in, in the book too. And I, I can only imagine, and you know, something that, you know, we could somewhat relate on. So I'm actually half black, but I look white. So my son, when he popped out a quarter, he looks white as hell, right? And I think about that because, you know, my, you know, entire half of my family, they're, they're more light, they're Creole and stuff like that. And, you know, but I've seen the struggles that they've had to go through, and especially with everything that popped off last year. Like, I've really started talking with them more and thinking about it. And, you know, uh, you know, some of my cousins and stuff, they're a little bit darker. But when you talk about your son and going through that, like, I am, you know, I have this heightened sense of awareness for my loved ones, but also in the book, you talk about privilege and maybe that's a good place to start too. And like one thing, one thing I loved about the book too, because there's so much arguing and bickering about social justice and anti-racism and stuff. And I'm like, people need to read this book, you know, cause like, I think people get the wrong idea, but you know, with all these definitions floating around, like you, you discuss privilege. So how do you define privilege in the book or how do you kind of see it yeah i i think and you're right everything all these words and phrases are being thrown around building this more fear Mm -hmm. um for each other when really they're just words that are being weaponized in ways that um really separate us Mm -hmm. and i think the core of this idea of privilege is just making the, the decision to know that i hold many identities in our in my mm-hmm. world right as a black woman 
as a somebody who's upper middle class, as a Christian. You know, these are all the, the values, all the identities that I hold. And in some of them, I have privilege. Mm-hmm. And some of them, generally speaking, and we're talking about obviously the identities that are and how they're ranked in the United States today, right? Because mm-hmm. we know they're all socially constructed. But there are some identities in which I'm marginalized. And I look at privilege as looking at those things in your life, like as a upper middle class person, I have privilege, right? And Mm -hmm. I want to use that privilege in a way that it is supporting people who don't have that same privilege. And so less weaponizing of the word privilege and more thinking about how we can use it for tools for change because I happen to have that privilege. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you, you put it just, Wow, chef's kiss just perfectly, right? Because I think that's where people get really upset about this because they think it's like this blanket statement and like, oh, just because of your skin color, you are privileged. But like you said, we hold so many different identities. And I've shared this story on the podcast before, but here's when I kind of recognize it. So in 2012, I got sober, right? And you hear a lot, like when I when I hear these kind of debates about privilege, Typically what people who say, you know, privilege isn't a thing or whatever, they'll bring, they'll bring forward like a white child who is an orphan, had a traumatic childhood and all these things. And they're like, is this little girl privileged? And it's like time out, right? So like what I had to look at with myself, like I grew up, you know, uh, my, my parents were divorced. My mom was an alcoholic, right? I had a lot of trauma in my childhood and everything. But anyways, when I got sober, in 2012, my mom was seven years sober, right? She had a good job. So I had the privilege of my mom getting sober. I had an advantage that a lot of other people don't. My mom, she's a psychologist. She makes decent money. She was able to pay for me to go into sober living, right? And, you know, I think it even took me a couple of years to wake up to that when I was working in a treatment center and seeing you know, all these people coming in who didn't have that. They didn't have a family support system. You know, so many addicts, for example, they come in and they're like, my family doesn't get it. Like, I have one person in my family who absolutely gets it. And, you know, so was I privileged for growing up with an alcoholic mom in a broken home? Absolutely not. But I did have an advantage when it was time to get sober. And and I think, you know, that's that's what I think about when I think of, you know, privilege, like what are these different aspects? But in your book, you know, because it's social justice parenting, how how can we talk to our kids about it? Because, uh, for example, uh, recently I had a, a, another author on here. We we're talking about some some of the CRT discussions in schools and everything like that. And, you know, there's there's this. I think there's this overblown sometimes idea where it's like, you know, kids come in and they're like, you know, they're like, oh, you're white, you're privileged, get out of here. You know, what? Right. <laughs> funny story, real quick, before I let you answer, I, I looked at my son the other day when this topic was up, I was like, hey, Dylan, I was like, have any of the teachers just been like, hey, uh, you know, you're, you're white and you have an advantage and you should feel bad. He looked at me like I just told him that we were flying on a unicorn. He was like, yes. <laughs> you know? so, so I'm always asking him, like, how widespread is this issue? But anyways, I'm sorry. How, how, do, how do we communicate privilege to our kids? Well, I, I think what you're saying, Chris, is such a good, I'm going to stay, stay on this for a second. It's such yeah. a good point, right? Because we drive so much fear into mm. parents that's not really it shouldn't be a fear. And uh-huh. this idea that we're doing around critical race theory is just fear-based parenting at its worst. Um, yeah. That we really are creating things that don't really exist. There's hardly any teachers that are even teaching critical race theory. It's a theoretical concept that's being taught in higher ed around laws and, um, you know, we're, we're just, it's just so misused, which mm-hmm. like you say, it's a whole different story. But um, I really think we, um, we are so fearful, again, of talking to our kids about the things that they really need to talk about mm-hmm. because of our own upbringings, right? We are afraid to have conversations, especially around race. It is like the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. We don't want to talk about it because we don't know what to say because perhaps it wasn't talked about in our own homes. Um, this is particularly white families because we know families of color talk about it often. Mm-hmm. But I think in my book, I have this chart that talks about all these identities and mm-hmm. whether you are have whole privilege in those identities or whether you could be marginalized in those, you know, those identities. 
And I would sit down with my kids and say, let's look at this. Let's think, see where we are, where our family, where do you fit in on these things? Mm-hmm. And then all these things that we have full privilege, how do we support other people who may not have this? It could be the start of your social justice work in your own home or mm-hmm. your activism work in your own home, letting your kids look at ways in which we may need support and ways in which we can support others um, so that they know that there's no black and white. Like there's a lot of great mm-hmm. areas in who we are and how we can support other people. So I would even start with, if, you know, if you're afraid of this idea of privilege, start with looking at all the identities and let our children see where um, we we can give more and we can do more and be kind in areas where we hold more. Yeah, absolutely. And, and here's, here's something I was thinking about too, while reading the book. So <laughs> like, I, I, I like to, cause you have like a lot of personal stories and there's a lot of introspection and stuff like that. I love when authors do that rather than just like, here's what you need to do, you know, cause we have to look at ourselves <laughs> too. Right. And, uh, so absolutely. My, so, so like my son, he, you know, he's been very fortunate. Like I, I, when I got sober, he was three, two or three, he doesn't really remember any of it. Right. But I work my ass off. His mom does too. And he lives in a good neighborhood. He goes to a good school and, you know, I've been, I've been raising him, you know, I, I follow a lot of the principles that you discuss in the book. And that's one of the reasons I loved it so much, but how do you, how do you kind of like talk to your kids about like, Hey, you, you like you're here, you were born into this. You didn't do a damn thing to be in this neighborhood to come from us, you know, from hardworking parents who are doing this and putting you in this position so that they don't look down on other people and just see, see like, you know, you talk about giving and, uh, you know, people in poverty and talking with your kids. And I want to touch on that in a little bit, but you know, how do we tell them like, Hey, you're not better than you were fortunate. Well, also, you know, you know, motivating them because they do work hard. Like, it sounds like your kids, like, you know, they're hard workers and stuff like that. Like my son, you know, just to pat myself on the back, he just got into the national junior honor society and stuff, but it's through, it's through his own hard work and stuff. So where do you find that balance between like, Hey, you're lucky to be in this position, but Hey, good job for working hard. <laughs> like, where's the yeah, balance? yeah, no, it, it is, it is a balance, right? I think um, not being afraid to say no to your kids is really important, even when they have a lot, right? Mm. I think it's important. My kids have chores, you know, even though they, they work hard in the school, they still have chores. There's still consequences for actions. Um, when they are doing well, it's celebrated. But also, we talk a lot in my house about privilege. Like, for example, there is uh, a, um, my my husband is coaching a my boys wreck basketball team. And there are kids on there who don't have a lot. Right? Mm. There, there are a couple of children who are um, socioeconomically don't have a lot. They don't have a lot of support uh, in their family or uh, in their extended families. And they struggle with learning. Um, and so when, when they're trying to learn plays or whatever it is, showing up late or not having whatever, um, you know, my kids who also play travel ball, they get mm-hmm. frustrated because mm. it's a different level, you know, between rec and travel. Yeah. And I have to like unpack that for them, right? You have parents who can pay for travel, paid for training. Imagine if you didn't have those things and mm-hmm. you walked onto the court on this rec team. What would that look like for you? And what is your role as a leader who's played basketball on these more elite teams? What is your role as a leader to support mm. these children who may not have the experiences, the opportunities that you have? And I, I let my kids know you do have a lot of gifts that God has given you, right? Mm-hmm. But without the opportunities, oh, yeah. you wouldn't be as far as you are. And so some of these other kids that may have the same gifts that you have, but without the opportunities. And so I really mm-hmm. let them know that hard work is important, but having opportunities really is kind of the um, foundation that kind of made, li- lift some of those things up more. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And, you know, I, I could sit just on this topic all day. I've been, you know, I dove into like a rabbit hole last year about just like on books on like, you know, the whole idea of like meritocracy and all that. And that's, that's kind of what it is. You know what I mean? Like, like without, without the right opportunities, 
your gifts don't mean squat. You know what Absolutely. I mean? Totally agree. So here's, here's something else that I, I wrestle with a lot as a parent. So, uh, I actually had my son, um, sit down and watch, uh, the college admission scandal documentary with us. Right. And just to kind of show him, because he, like I said, he works very hard and like, you know, uh, his mom and I were separated. We're both like, you know, we're like middle-class. Right. But if he, if that little sucker gets into like Harvard or something, like you better get a scholarship. <laughs> so anyways, I had him watch that documentary with us and I'm curious, you know, what, what do you do to talk to your kids about like, Hey, your hard work will get you this far. And sometimes it's not going to be enough. Sometimes some, you know, not even money, but you know, maybe, maybe you didn't get that spot in college because one of the admissions people, their niece was getting in. Cause there's, you know what I mean? There's just so many things. So like, I never want to discourage my son from working hard, but I also want to be real with him and say, Hey, yeah, sometimes that's not enough. So where, where do you have that conversation with your kids about that? I, I think, um, it's the reality of life, right? This mm -hmm. is it, going to happen. It happens to all of us. It will happen to you. I also am a big proponent of teaching kids to advocate for themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm, and I could be a mama bear too. Like I try not to be a helicopter mom, yeah. but when I feel like my kid may need me to advocate for him or watching me advocate for her. Um, I, I like to do that as well, but I also like to equip my child with advocating for themselves if they think they weren't treated fairly or if mm -hmm. they think um, somebody misunderstood what they were saying or doing. Mm -hmm. um, I like to role play those things. I like to walk them through that so that um, kind of scaffold their learning as a learn to advocate for themselves. But I think it's really important that we teach our kids the skill of advocacy for mm -hmm. themselves and for others, right? But um, I don't think that is expressly taught enough. Um, I think we just mm -hmm. assume our kids would learn how to do that for themselves. And they learn that through a modeling, through role-playing, mm. through helping them, giving them the language and the steps to do that. And I think that's really important so they can be able to speak up for themselves when you're not around. Or as they get older, it becomes easier for them to be able to mm -hmm. do that. Um, yeah. But like you're saying, Chris, too, you know, teach them that sometimes life is not fair. Um, and sometimes we have to accept that consequence, or sometimes we can use that as a way to teach us, teach our kids to, to, um, advocate for change. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you know, a lot of that circles back to just, you know, social justice parenting, because a lot of what you talk about is getting involved and, you know, finding, you know, topics or issues that you're passionate about, write them down, see what you can do. And that's kind of, you know, uh, you know, what, what I try to instill in my son, like if he sees a problem, like when he watched that documentary with us, he's like, well, that's kind of messed up. It's like, okay, well, what can you do about it? Right. Can you raise awareness? Can you get involved in something like what, what is this? Right. Or or sometimes it's just, can you show a little bit more compassion to other people? Because you realize that stuff like this is happening, you know, because part of, part of, you know, a lot of the debates, just political debates and stuff, there's this idea of like, oh, well, if, if you're down on your luck, it's just because you're not working hard enough. It's like, Ooh, if you only knew like that, like talk yes. about, talk about coming from a privileged place. <laughs> exactly. You know? But your entire book really could have been, you know, or you could write a sequel book that's like quit being such a scared parent, because I think so much of it comes back to fear. And you mentioned it earlier, but can you, can you touch on that a little bit? Like what, what are we afraid of? Like, like even when we talk about critical race theory, right? Like let's, let's just use that as an example, right? Like, why are you so afraid of your kid hearing these things? You think they can't handle it? Like, why aren't you talking with your kid about it? Like, uh, I'm a huge mental health guy because of my recovery. And that's something I do with my son. And you, you, you kill it in the book talking about that. But you know, there's certain things that I've realized like, okay, well, school's not talking about this. So here's what I do as a parent. So from your experience, what are we so afraid of when it comes to these conversations with our kids about race or about, you know, uh, sexism or about, you know, all sorts of stuff. I think this idea and, and you, you're you're on the money baby because that fear-based parenting that's book two for sure yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm coming to you first with it <laughs> i can't wait um yeah i think it's there's this need to be able to control or protect our kids in ways that 
okay, the bottom line is our intentions are good, right? The intentions yeah. are good, you, 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 but the end results really keep our kids from growing. It keeps them from really leaning into their natural curiosities. It teaches them from, it teach it, it stops them from learning how to be more compassionate and more kind to learn about others because we're so busy on um, trying to keep them in this bubble. And it really limits their opportunities. It limits their experiences. And we have to really learn how to move, move through. And mm -hmm. I think people are fearful and fearful of the unknown. Um, mm -hmm. there, I think people are fearful that oh, propping others up will make them lose power in some ways, mm -hmm. right? It's just general fear. Um, I think people are fear of getting it wrong, not knowing the answers. They're fe they're fearful of maybe exposing their children to things that they're not sure about. Um, sometimes people are fearful of saying too much or not saying enough when it comes to these hard conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, some parents are not equipped to deal with their own emotions and big yeah. feelings. And so they're afraid of being vulnerable with their children or showing that side of them. Um, and I think it, a lot of times it's their own, our own uh, lived experiences and memories and experiences that kind of keep us from allowing ourselves to open up to our children. Mm -hmm. um, and I think in the long term, we put these stresses and these anxieties of our own onto our children and mm -hmm. it, get, it gets perpetuated, right? We can't get out of that cycle until we're able to kind of walk into the fear, mm -hmm. reflect on that fear a little bit um, mm -hmm. and be able to expose it to, to the light really in order for us to start getting answers and have a dialogue around things that scare us. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's something I, I, I loved about the book. There's so much just, you know, you're talking about like reflecting and stuff because, you know, as I mentioned, like I grew up with an alcoholic mom and my life was crazy as a kid. Right. And when I became a parent, because so many of us, especially if you had bad parents, like your number one goal is like, I want to be better than that. Right. But without even realizing it, we're making the same mistakes and doing these things and random question for you, because I was thinking about it while I was reading too. Have you read the book parenting from the inside out by Dan Siegel? And somebody I have, else? Yes, I've read parts of it. I haven't read the whole okay. thing. Yes. Yeah. Yes. When I yeah, when I first got sober and I was like, okay, time to be a dad, you know, I came across that book. And and yeah, I love it. And and parts of your book kind of remind me of, you know, some of the same practices and stuff and just realizing like, oh, here's where that's coming from. And, you know, maybe, maybe I'm remembering a bad experience talking with my parents about it. Or or um, you know, you talk about modeling a lot. And some of us we didn't have that modeling. So we didn't really have an example of, you know, how to do it, but you know, there, there's also been a conversation lately, right? Because as you mentioned, like we try not to be helicopter parents, but then, you know, like, like you talk about, like if a kid's like bullying our kid, we want to like go down to the school, like, right. crazy. but there, there's a conversation around, like we were coddling our kids too much. Like, have you seen that? Because I, so I was born in 85 and I look back and I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I used to like, my dad used to be like, Hey, just be back by sundown. I go ride my bike and, you know, just no cell phones. If I was lucky, I had a quarter and I could use a payphone if something happened, you know, whatever. And I even, you know, I try to think about that all the time because my son has a cell phone and, and just, you know, for example, if he like wants to go for a walk, like around the block for a little exercise, I'd have him put the, the, like share my location function on. And that's something that we didn't have access to as a kid. So, so what are your thoughts? Like, do you think it's getting worse with the coddling and that we need to dial back a little bit or, or what do you think? Yeah, I too have mixed feelings about that. I, I think the world is a scary place. Honestly, it can be a scary place, right? I think with technology there's a lot of great things but also it's opened up the world to things that we didn't have to worry about right um uh -huh. especially with kids getting involved with things online that may lead them to doing things that we we just didn't do um, uh -huh. we have access to do so i think in that sense uh there is a need to have some kind of protection or some kind of um way to, 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 to touch base or check in with your kids. Uh, I think we also, though, we, we want everything to be wrapped in nice ribbons and uh, wrapping paper that we don't allow them to trip up a little bit. And mm -hmm. I, so I think we have to allow them enough um, room on the leash, right. Yeah. To make some mistakes, to fall down, to um, get in predicaments. 
so that we can use them as learning tools for them as they grow older. So if we protect them, um, their whole youth, by the time they're in the real world as real adults, they would have missed some major um, opportunities to really grow up and mm. um, make problem solve. Make I know one thing that um, I'm putting on my kind of educators, academic hat, mm. a lot of the research that's coming out is really talking about when kids or young people are entering the workplace, they have a hard time with uh, problem solving. They have a hard time with team, working with teams. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of this is because we haven't allowed them to, to um, really grapple with making decisions. Like when my kids ask me some questions like, what do I think about things that really are not big deals? And I'm like, you, what do you think? They're like, well, I just want to know what you think. I'm like, you know what? Yeah. That's a small, small, low, low. Um, there's very little risk there. Very low yeah. risk for you making that decision by yourself. You make that decision and whatever yeah. consequence that comes, it's not that big of a deal. Like yeah. if you choose the wrong color shirt or whatever it, the, the, I'm mm -hmm. like, that's something you have to do on your own. So allowing them to make these small decisions early with low risk consequences, it builds your capacity to make um, harder decisions when the stakes are high. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We, Tracy, you and I, same page like that's what yeah. I, I think all the time it's just you know i give my son these opportunities to fail in low stake situations and i think you know one of the best examples like we we both got into cooking uh in the last year probably at the beginning of the pandemic maybe a little bit before but i've i've started letting go a little bit more and see what he can just like make on his own and follow instructions i'll just give him a recipe and stuff and that's very low stakes right and he's like hey uh how long do i put this in for because my son like part of his like you know just trying to be good at school, it carries over to this stuff. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. Just, just try it. Like, you know, what's the worst that's going to happen? He's going to burn something, overcook something, or whatever. Yes. Right? And, and yeah, but, you know, a lot of it, again, it comes back to that fear. And I think, you know, you, you, you touched on it earlier too. Like, it comes from a good place, right? When we're trying to protect our kids. And what I do, what I personally do, I'm like, okay, if this is coming from a good place, right? I have to think, is this, helping or harming my kid to not let them go through this, right? To not have conversations with them, to not let them fail. In the long term, am I helping or I'm hurting? When I do that, I can step out of that fear a little bit because I look at the, the bigger picture. And like you're talking about with, uh, you know, some of the research and all this stuff, it's like, yeah, like the long-term damage can be a lot more. And I'm, I'm curious, like, what are, what are some of the things, like, give me some examples what are some low stakes situations that some of us can start practicing with our kids? Uh, and, and I guess what would be good is what's a high stakes example where it's like, all right, I need to come in and intervene too. Yeah. I low stakes, right? If my kid, and these are some examples I'll have a book too. If my kid forgets a homework assignment, mm. I'm not going to bring it to him. He has a 98 in the class. One homework assignment is not going to kill him, right? Now he has supposed to pack his stuff at night. I'm not going to bring it, mm -hmm. right? On that same note, right, if he's trying out for a team and he left his shoe or his permission slip, I'm going to take it to him because that's the only chance he may get to be able to try out for a team. Mm. So that's not real high stakes, but, you know, medium stakes. I'll intervene in that. Um, if they're making a decision about college or about test taking, right, or something like that, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking about, I'm thinking in terms of school. That's something that I want to sit with him and make some decisions about making sure his dates are great, that he's turning, um, he's got all his dates on the calendar. He's just missed something that he's supposed to miss. That I will mm -hmm. follow up on. Mm -hmm. um, if we're at a restaurant and my kid's order is not right, right? I'm going to make him tell the, tell the waiter, like in a very respectful way, Yeah, I asked for ketchup instead of mustard whatever it is right yeah to say you know so those are low stakes but it gets them skilled in the language to respectfully ask for what you want mm -hmm. um, so i think in those little moments where they want to forget it or not even like when my kids are calling to order something on the phone like ordering dinner they don't want to be on the phone doing it and i'm like no you're going to talk you're going to say what you want you're going to ask them how much yeah. you know that kinds of things they they don't want my younger kids don't want to do that. So 
it uh, seems small and they're always in like, why can't you just do it? Because I know how to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's why can't you do it? Yeah. 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 It's, it's one of those, it's one of those things. There's so many like simple things. I, I was thinking like, as you were talking, like, I love the part about self-advocacy too. Like, you know, and it's, it's weird because like I said, my, my son's 12 going on 13 and, you know, I've, I've always been thinking like, okay, when, like, I don't, like, I'm just slowly letting go of the rope. But it was like a year, maybe a year, two years ago on his birthday, he was going to, like, he was going bowling with a friend for his birthday. It's on New Year's Eve. So sometimes plans get messed up. We have a party later. But anyways, he, he, we, he was like trying to see like what time they were open or something like that. And, uh, I was about to call him like, wait a second, you call. Right. And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he went and, you know, he figured out what the phone number was. He called and he walked out like, what just happened? You know, and, you know, it was difficult for him talking with him. I think the the woman he talked to had a little bit of an accent. So we had to go through that, you know, the communication struggles that we all have to deal with on a regular basis. But, you know, even just the other day, as I was reading your book, uh, we, we went to go see uh, the new Venom movie, right? And the screen was not on. Like, there was no previews or anything. And, you know, because um, I'm huge into reading books about, like, the bystander effect and stuff like that, where people just don't do anything. So I looked at him. I told him, I said, hey, go tell someone the screen's not on, right? If I'm being honest, part of it was me not wanting to get up out of that comfy seat. But it, part of it, too, is, like, here, just just go talk to it. And and yeah. just giving those two examples, it's night and day. He didn't question it. He went, he did it. He came back and told me about the experience. But I think the reason I love the self-advocacy part of your book too is it's so important in this world. Like, you know, when, like you said, it is a scary place, right? And there's going to be times when we're not around with our kids and God forbid something happens, you know, with a teacher or a coach and, you know, and or people, or they see something that isn't right, you know, because part yes. of this... You talk a lot about sticking up for others. So have you seen since teaching your kids about self-advocacy and, you know, even anti-racism and stuff that they're, they're speaking up more for not just themselves, but for others as well? I do. I do. And I'm, it, it is my, my proudest, proudest moments as mm -hmm. a mom, you know, when I get that call from a teacher that says, um, I know my youngest kid when he was in probably, I don't know, it must have been first grade. Mm. Um, I got the call from the teacher. There's a child with Down syndrome in the class. Mm -hmm. And she was telling me how my son would always leave his friend group to go with this little boy to teach him how to play kickball and to mm -hmm. teach him how to um, catch uh, football during um, recess and always pulled him into the group and telling his friend group that he needed to be a part of that group. Those mm -hmm. kinds of things are just like, those are the mommy moments that I'm just like, okay, maybe it doesn't always feel like things are sinking in, but mm -hmm. they're really listening. They're really watching. And that's why it's so important to, you know, build these habits because we may not see it every day, but when our kids are out in the world, you hear other parents say, your kid is fantastic. Your kid is amazing. Mm. So we, we create safe spaces in our home to allow them to express those big feelings, knowing that we're giving them the foundation that they need the core values that they need when they go out into the world that they're going to do the right thing mm. yeah yeah i love i love the book like you ha you give a lot of like exercises and like little things that people can do but so much of it just comes back to the home and having these conversations and i i think you're absolutely right when it starts there and like you know people realize you know that or kids realize that they can talk about things at home and open up and, you know, and also that their parents have their backs, you know, but they'll also call them out on their stuff. They, they can, you know, make more decisions out in the real world and come back and things like that. Um, you know, I've, you know, especially with just COVID and all the misinformation and, you know, all these things, I think about that. And I, I've told my son, and you talk about this in the book too. This is why we're on the same page. Like if a teacher said something that's even somewhat questionable, I'm like, don't be a jerk. Don't call them out in the middle of class, but, but you're always more than welcome to come back and ask me and your mom, right? Like ask one of us, ask an adult who you trust, get a second opinion because, you know, even just right now when, you know, friends are asking me like, oh, what do you think about the vaccine and da, 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 da. It's like, well, I turn to these people and I get multiple opinions and I look at different, <laughs> I'm trying to yes. instill that. And sometimes you have to do that even with, you know, teachers and, you know, things like that. And I think 
hopefully that that helps when they grow up and go to work and and see stuff and and your kids are uh you have uh, uh, some kids who are a little bit older now has it gotten is it is it still part of that habit or has it been difficult like have they come to you like since going into like college or anything and been like hey mom i'm dealing with this and is it different yeah you know it I can still see that they, they know the core values of our house, right? They know what is expected. They know um, how I expect them to, to care, to hold themselves out in mm. the world. Um, but I also have, like, my daughter's 21. She will call me sometimes from school and say, oh, mom, like, I see why you did this mm. when I couldn't see it before. Or this makes sense to me now. And she's now, she's in, she's in school and she has a part-time job working at a preschool, you know, oh. in between classes. And she says, when I'm with those two-year-olds, I feel like you, like, I, I feel what you've done for me as a mother. I feel that when I'm with my, with my students. Mm-hmm. So I know as they get older, this is why I think it's really important as families to really intentionally create core values, oh. like. Don't think your kids know what's important to you. You have to know that they know. You have to write them down in your family meetings. Talk about them. If you have mm-hmm. a little bit older kids, maybe like five and older, um, ask them what they think part of their core values are. Have those down on paper. Mm-hmm. Have them in your house. Have them in their notebooks so that when things are out of line, which kids get, right? They mm-hmm. push boundaries. That's their jobs. When those boundaries are being pushed, you have this kind of, you know, uh, GPS, right. To yeah. bring you back in alignment. Like these are core values. Um, is this action aligned with those core values? Right. Mm-hmm. Even as a mom, like my kids will say, uh, mom, <laughs> the way you talk to me or what you said to me doesn't align with what we say is important to us. Mm. And I have to say, yeah, I lost it. You're right. Yeah. Um, that does not align with the way we say we should treat each other in this house and this house being a safe space. I apologize for that. Yeah. You know, it's on me. So we have to be willing to also see when we're not in alignment and have our kids very respectfully or call us on it. Um, and, um, but I think the core values that you create in your home intentionally, and this is again, what you were saying earlier, Chris, about, you know, really being reflective about our own childhoods what mm. was great from our childhoods that we want to bring into our parenting, what no longer serves us that we mm. can intentionally practice on letting go. Um, and then how do we build that, uh, those core values that we want in our own homes um, mm. as parents that we want our kids to take into the world. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you bring up such a great point about our kids calling us out. Cause that's one of the things when we talk, we're getting to self-advocate and they start talking. Right, right. <laughs> right. Like, wait but, a minute. Uh, yeah, but you know, like that, that even ties into like, you know, our, our own childhoods. Cause I remember, I remember growing up the thing I hated the most, but I hated the most when I would ask why, and it's like, because I'm the adult, right. And things like that, or seeing like adults, like contradict themselves drove me nuts. So like, I try not to be a hypocrite as a parent now, but I I'm curious your thoughts about this because I going back to fear, right. I think, I think parents are afraid to admit when they're wrong to their kids or say they're sorry um you have a you have a part where you talk about like when we're you know maybe we're we're busy with work and we snap at our kids or we don't give them the time to listen to them and oh i can relate because you know i've had my own struggles with anxiety when i'm racing you know and i've had to open up with my son and say hey i'm in a time where my my head's going and i'm sorry but let's come back to this right but anyway like how or do you have any tips or advice how can parents start being okay with their kids, calling them out on this stuff and having some conversations. And, you know, because I think if I'm thinking about the fear, I would assume the fear is they won't respect us if we admit we're wrong. And then almost as I'm saying, I'm like, I think they respect us more. (laughs) So so what are some things that we could do to like overcome that fear and like apologize to our kids or let them know when we're wrong? Yeah, I, I think if we think in terms of like looking at it from perspectives, Think about it, the kind of person you want your child to be when they're an adult out in the world. Mm. If you want them to be the kind of child, that kind of adult that never admits that they're wrong, um, then 
think about what you're raising at home. So mm. our kids are going to be a microcosm of, of the bigger picture, right? The bigger thing of what, what you want them to be. All of these practices that we're building in our homes, all of these conversations, um, are you creating a safe space where your child can talk about the hard things? They all kind of manifest in a way that could be positive or negative when, they, when they're adults. Mm. If a child never had a safe space to have talk conversations, they may be the kind of kid that when they're older, they hold everything in and that could have physical issues or uh, mental health issues when they become adults. So I always think about the things that you do in your home are really, are the building blocks to building a human being, mm -hmm. adult human being out in the world. And if we are not showing them and modeling for them, the things that we think are important for them to have when they leave, um, we're not giving them the tools to be that person. Yeah. And I think, like you said, when I say to my, my child, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. Here's mm -hmm. how I'm going to try to do that differently next time. Mm -hmm. uh, it's giving them permission to make mistakes. Yeah. Um, and it's showing them how to show up in a constructive way when they do make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And so all of that has to be modeled if we expect old children to know how to do that later in life. Yeah. Yeah. So much of it. Like sometimes I look at the world and I'm like, you know, one of the reasons I do so much with my son is it's like, I'm hoping your generation can like save us. Right. Cause you, you look around the landscape today, how hard is it for people to admit when they're wrong? Right. They hold on, we hold on to our beliefs and ideas, you know, even when new evidence comes up, you know? So like you're saying, like when we give them the space uh, to admit when they're wrong and, and we model again, we model that behavior and all that. And you know, one of one of the things I, I wanted to discuss with you because you you it's actually early on in the book is this whole mental health topic, right? So, uh, you know, obviously, you know, from my background, I've worked in treatment, and I look back, and you know, a lot of my childhood, mental health wasn't even a topic. Like that's that's one of the many reasons I turned to substances because I didn't know about depression, I didn't know about anxiety, I didn't know about any of that stuff. I just knew I felt different, and these substances made that go away, right? So I'm big on mental health, but you know, I. I don't feel like we talk about it enough and you found the comfort in talking with that with your kids and acknowledging it and even going and getting help. But I, you know, this is just a fear I, I have. I feel, you know, it, it hits on that, that idea of being a perfect parent where if we admit that our kid has a problem, maybe we did something wrong. You know what I mean? So how, how can parents get over, I guess, that fear too? recognize and talk and have these conversations like do parents need to make mental health more of a priority or like schools or what what are you what are your thoughts around the whole landscape well, i think all of it and i think <laughs> because i think our kids our kids are suffering they're suffering mm. um and if we don't start thinking about this remove finding out ways to remove this taboo stigma around mental health, we are going to lose a lot of children mm -hmm. needlessly. Uh, our kids are hurting. And part of that is the adults wanting to make everything look good on the outside. And we're not addressing what's really going on either in our homes or in that child. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, you know, I talk about in the book about my daughter who was hurting and because we we didn't see it at first, right? Mm. We were so busy giving her all the activities, all the opportunities, and she felt like she had to be good at all of these things mm -hmm. um, to either make, not really make us proud, but to not squander the opportunities, right, that yeah. we were giving her, which were too much. Mm -hmm. uh, we saw as opportunities. She felt like it was another thing that she had to try to be good at which causes mm. anxiety, right? Um, and I, um, I think we need to be really careful with the overscheduling of our kids. Mm -hmm. I think that's a lot of anxiety that our children have. Um, and we need to get away from pretending that everything is perfect in our worlds. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the more parents that are talking about it openly, it gives permission for other parents to talk about it openly. Um, the more that you're having those discussions in your home, it gives your it validates your ch child's real feelings and emotions. Um, mm -hmm. But I think there are times that you have to get professional help, right? Yeah. There are times that 
there are things going on in your world, different times in your world that you can't, you, you can't do it by yourself. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I have all these degrees in education and I'm a pretty plugged in mom, but I know my limits. I mm -hmm. knew my children when they need to go into therapy. I know when I needed therapy, that yep. it was time for me to go into therapy. I knew when my husband and I need to go as a couple around the issues that my children were having. Um, I think we need to take away that stigma, work on taking away that stigma um, and, and get the support that's needed for ourselves and for our families. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And it's it's something where, you know, uh, when I was working at the treatment center, like you, you talk about in the book, like, you know, things that, you know, families can do, like going out for like walks and, you know, uh, or like, you know, uh, just organizations they care about. Like you talk about one for like Down syndrome. My son and uh, my girlfriend and I, we went, there was an annual, before COVID, there was an annual walk for like suicide prevention here that we would go about. And I would bring them to, we would do events at the treatment center I worked at. I bring them in and I'm very open with them. But as you discuss in your book, I would do very age appropriate, right? Like we're telling him about addiction when he was like six, seven years old. I'm like, imagine if you couldn't stop eating chocolate, even though, you're, you know. Yes, yes, that's and great. And stuff yeah. like that. And, you know, uh, yeah, because it's another thing where I know schools are trying to do better, but is still not enough. And, you know, I think you're the perfect person to talk to about this. And maybe you could even give me some advice because I do mental health advocacy and stuff like that. But um, as you, you probably know, in, in the black community, it's stigmatized and sometimes not less accepted to talk about mental illness. And just even you telling the story about your son, Right. Like I've, I've seen stories of, you know, black men getting, you know, shot or beat by the police. And I'm like, this, this dude might've been having a bipolar episode, you know, and, you know, at, at no fault of the person, but if we're not, if we're not talking about it in these communities and getting it treated, you know, cause even in my family, like Trace in my family, like on my mom's side, we'll talk about addiction, mental health all day long. When I was my dad's side of the family, <laughs> you know, they, I, I've been sober for almost uh, nine and a half years now, and they'll still offer me a beer and stuff. Like, and I try to educate them. But anyways, anyways, what what are some solutions you you see where we can start talking about mental health more in Black communities? Like, is it resources? Is it conversations? Like, what can we do there? I think the first thing, I think it's uh, a lot of therapists, uh, mental health therapists, they need to be trained in cultural responsive uh, mm. therapy, right? You need to know the pressures of being uh, a person of color in the, in the community and the trauma that that causes, right? The stress, extra stressors, what you need to do um, to be able to support people through that. Um, mm. That's the first thing. The second thing is I think uh, churches have to be involved. Because a lot of times in the Black community, people uh, are afraid to say they need help because it, may, it means that it, they lack faith in Jesus, mm -hmm. right? And the healing of Jesus sometimes, right? So we have to separate having faith uh, in God's healing versus using God's um, gifts through these therapists to really support us through all things. So I think um, the church and church leaders really need to get involved with mental health issues and really kind of breaking down the walls that separate religion and, and, and getting therapy in the black community. Mm -hmm. um, and I think more people who are seeking out therapy need to speak out more about what it does for them, the good that it does for them. Um, and I think mental health um, therapists and um, workers need to come into the black community. Like mm. you're not going to get a lot of black uh, uh, clients coming to your office if it's not close yeah. to the community, right? So there needs to be some kind of partnership between the leaders in the community and and the mental health um, agencies um, that will make it feel safe. Um, and you know, listen, there's real trauma there. You know, when mm -hmm. we look at historically, black people don't like the white medical uh, world digging in their heads, right? Yeah. There, there has been some legitimate trauma in the past. Um, but we have to know that we've evolved since then and that we can use uh, the resources that we have um, in ways that are safe um, and that are, can help us. Yeah, yeah. And, 
you know, as you're talking about that too, I, I wish, you know, uh, another area that we educated more too is, is law enforcement, right? Like, you know, with, with just the heightened anxiety that, you know, the black community faces just all the time, you know, like you have to be worried about every time you're getting pulled over or whatever it is, you know, uh, just, just understanding how the brain works and anxiety, like you're training your brain to be in this heightened state. So then like when, when you see people like, oh, well, well, why do they resist? I'm like, because they're freaking out. You know, yeah, like, like the it's generational is, trauma is yeah. that example of generational trauma, right? Yeah, they are thinking back to what's happening, what has happened in the past. I mean, from slavery on, really, we, we carry mm -hmm. that same trauma in our bodies. Mm -hmm. um, you know, all that research on generational trauma about um, those experiences living in the body generations later. Yeah, um, yeah, it's, it's and it's, when it's, you're in that fight or flight mm -hmm. mentality, you're not thinking rationally. Yeah, the prefrontal cortex to just sit his body. Yes, <laughs> he just go and we get it. It's weird too because we have we have research. I believe the research was conducted around, uh, you know, generations of uh, Holocaust survivors, right? And they saw how their children and grandchildren had symptoms of you know uh, PTSD or heightened anxiety just because the genes, the way they passed yes. on and everything. But you know, when we're talking about therapists and stuff coming into black communities and everything, I remember, um, you know, because I've, I've been trying to read books about mental health in black communities and everything. There's a great book called like Healing Racial Trauma. I think it came out last year, but I remember reading uh, Charlemagne the God. He wrote a book about uh, his anxiety and therapy and everything. But he talked about like you like you were mentioning um you know, fears of, you know, uh, uh, the black community having like a white therapist or white psychologist. So do you, where do you think the solution for that is? Do you think that we need more people of color getting into the mental health field? Like, for example, my girlfriend, as lovely as she is, she's white, right? And she's getting her master's in social work right now. And, you know, I think about some struggles that she might have and, you know, dealing with clients. So where do you, do you think that's like, more on the community or is it like oh, we need more people of color getting in like you know funding to get them schooling and have them help or like i'm, I'm curious where you see these solutions are is it is it both is it everything <laughs> yeah yeah I, definitely um i think uh because my my daughter is a psychology major and mm. uh, i was on center an article that talked about uh two percent of the uh psycho psychologists are uh, black women Mm. And about the need for more of them in the field for their community. Mm -hmm. um, and so I do think there needs to be a, a large number of people of color who are going into the field because, you know, there's automatically a trust factor there. Um, yeah. And then I think people who are uh, white therapists need to partner with mm. uh, some therapists of color to uh, maybe do sessions with them or do group settings with them um, mm -hmm. until they can build that uh, low light trust factor. Uh, I think it's yeah. really important. Um, yeah. And I think it's really important that community leaders step up and say, this is person, person we can trust. This is something that we need in our community. Uh, maybe um, having two or three therapists that, that um, are endorsed by leaders in the community Ooh. that they can start trusting. But I definitely think there's not enough for sure. Um, and um, I don't think that, I don't think white, I mean, I think white therapists can do very well with patients of color or clients of yeah. color. But they have to do the cultural work in order yeah. to be able to show up. Uh, yeah, and they it, have to allow their patients to come in to be able to unpack that too. Yeah, the, the education of experience is so important. Just you know, in all areas, like first of all, sometimes you just get a crappy therapist. Like I work at a pretty big treatment center. We just have therapists who are bad, right? So we need to understand right. that across the board. But also, like something I realized working in treatment was I'm a recovering addict, right? And we had we had a, a, a decent amount of therapists who were in recovery as well, but some just went to school for it. And it's the same thing. There's that, that trust factor. Like, do you really understand what I, I'm going through? Do you really understand where, where this is coming from? Right? Like, have you ever done this for drug, you know, but in, in those communities, it's like, if you're not educated about, you know, the, the anxiety, the trauma, you know, all these things. 
And, you know, I, I only have a little bit more of your time. And I, I think a great way to wrap this up is I want to talk about kindness because I feel the world is lacking it. We're just at each other's throats all the time, bickering, screaming all this, right? And, and, you know, how, how can we, how can we better instill kindness in our children and how can we instill it in ourselves so we can model that behavior better? You know, what are, what are just some tips before people run out and buy your book by the dozens? Yeah, I think I, I look at it in th three levels, right? The first one is self-kindness, right? Mm. We have to learn how to forgive ourselves, how to treat ourselves in ways that other people you know, we want we, the way we treat other people, right? So I think having self-kindness makes it easier for you to be kind to others. And our kids get to witness what self-kindness looks like, mm. which we want them to have to. Um, the second level is uh, moving to your family, your kids. How do you show kindness to your family? How do you do small acts of kindness with your children so that it becomes normalized um, mm -hmm. and habit building? so that they are, are comfortable with that, would take it to the third level, which is out in the world. Yeah. So it goes back to that whole idea of finding something that your family really is passionate about. Like we can't change everything, but in our space, right, we can change something. And mm -hmm. so as a family, decide what that something is and how you can go about doing things. I know in our family, we like to do little things like um, you know, paying for people behind us in line, mm -hmm. um, leaving um, real kind notes around. There was a time period where leaving those, I don't know in your town, but leaving those painted rocks, the kind message I mm -hmm. in different parts and different places. So when yeah. you come across it, you you read it, you did it, and then you put it somewhere else. So it was like this kind of uh, perpetual kindness that was yeah. going around. Um, so I think finding spaces, small spaces where you can show kindness and do kindness, but I think it starts with us, you know, being kind to ourselves. We're going to make yeah. mistakes. We're not going to get it right. Um, being open and honest about that. Um, showing our kids how we show up for ourselves when we make the mistakes in a constructive way so mm -hmm. that they can learn to do the same when they grow up. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so huge. Like, yeah. And, and sometimes, like you mentioned earlier, sometimes we need to get some therapy. Like if I'm sitting here beating myself up, how am I supposed to teach my kids self-love and how is, how is he going to be kind to others if he's beating himself up and, and all that stuff. But I really enjoyed that about the book. And like I said, I, I, I hope your book is so successful because I feel like it gives such a good perspective and balance. And I feel like when people hear social justice and I go, oh, I know where this is going. And, and it was such a great book. So, so for everybody who's going to be getting it, we're recording this a couple of weeks before, but when, when is the official launch date and where's the best place for people to follow you, Tracy, for when you write that second book about fear-based parenting <laughs> and all that stuff. Yes, the official date is October 19th, um, that they'll be on bookshelves. If people pre-ordered it, um, you should be getting it on that date as well. Mm. Um, the best way where there's a lot of conversation going on um, is on Instagram at Social Justice Parenting. And if you're interested in any of the other things that I do, including places where you can get the book, my um, website is the same name, socialjusticeparenting.com. Beautiful. Awesome. And I will be linking all that down in the description. Tracy, it has been a pleasure. And yeah, we're, we're probably going to have to do this again sometime. It's been oh, great. I would love that, Chris. This has uh, been so enjoyable. Absolutely. I feel like we're, we're fast, fast <laughs> friends, right? Oh yeah, we'll definitely be. We'll definitely be talking absolutely. soon. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> all right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Tracy about her brand new book, Social Justice Parenting. And yeah, I hope, hope you gained from that conversation. This isn't just a book that parents can benefit from. I think, you know, teachers or if you're an uncle or an aunt, you know, I, I think, I really think like books like Tracy's, I think they're important for all of us because I can't tell you how many conversations there are where people are just like so worried about our kids. Like, oh my God, our kids, our kids. Like, even if you don't have kids, read books like this because it will help educate you on, you know, 
what what kids are you know dealing with and how we could better mold them and everything like that and why we shouldn't be so afraid of everything you know coming out kids ways you know as a parent and i talked with tracy a little bit about this as a parent like i get scared you know i get worried and all these other things but we have to we have to trust that if we if we create a good foundation for our kids to do the right thing to be caring compassionate to take care of their mental health all these things, like the rest of the stuff will come a lot easier to them. So please, please, please do yourself a favor. Make sure you're not only following Tracy, that's linked down in the description, but also grab a copy of Social Justice Parenting. And here's what I recommend. You know somebody, you know somebody who's a parent, you know somebody who's a teacher, you know somebody who's talking about kids and oh my God, like our kids today, whenever. Buy them a copy of this book. Give them a copy of this book. We've got Christmas coming up in a, in a couple months. Just boom, here you go. Here's a copy of Social Justice Parenting. This is an absolutely amazing book, and I really, really enjoy talking with Tracy. So make sure that you're following her and grab a copy. And also down in the description below, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter so you don't miss any upcoming episodes, any new announcements, the projects I'm working on. But most of all, I love chatting with all of you. Recently, so many of you have been reaching out to me with book recommendations with feedback about, you know, some of the conversations that we're having here on the podcast. So I absolutely love chatting with you. And down in the description, remember there are uh, two books that I just released 100% free. Check that out. Be sure to share it. Uh, share the episode if you think that's good. And if you need additional help with your mental health, I talk about this in my books. There is also an affiliate link down below for better help online therapy. That is a service that I have personally used. And yeah, like Tracy and I talked about, like parents, sometimes we need some therapy so we can be better, better parents. So yeah, check out that affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, it's affordable, it's online. And when you use my link down below, a little bit comes back to help support the podcast, what I'm doing here and my reading habit and all that kind of stuff. All right. So another huge, huge thanks to Tracy for coming on. And I, I hope she has as much success as possible with this book because it is such a great book. Uh, and yeah, for all of you, have an amazing rest of your day. And we have one more episode coming for you tomorrow. And it's actually an episode that I just recorded this morning. It is very relevant to some stuff going on in the world today. I'm not going to spoil it for you. You're just going to have to make sure you're following me on social media so you don't miss when this episode comes out. But I will tell you this. Here's my little teaser for you. It is extremely, extremely relevant to a lot of stuff going on right now that you've heard about in the news and everything. And it's an amazing conversation. So you don't want to miss it. All right. But until then, have an amazing rest of your day and I'll see you next time.